You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Throughout history, there have been leaders who've issued declarations of their vision of what humanity should be like, manifestos of how society should be organized, Declaration of Independence, Communist Manifesto, Jerry Maguire's internal memo, all kinds of leaders declaring this is how society should be organized. And if they're leaders, they're not just giving you philosophy of like, wouldn't it be nice if society was built this way? They're also saying, and here's how we're going to put it into practice. It's not just idea, it's intent. This is the way the world should be, and this is what I'm doing to bring that about, right? So it's, it's got vision to it. This is where we're going. And it has values, and this is who we are meant to be along the way. When someone issues a manifesto. It's got cause. Here's where we're meant to go. And it's got culture, and this is what it's like to be one of us, right? And so all through history, men, women have issued manifestos, statements like these, declarations of what a culture, a society should be, and they've met various degrees of success. They forged nations, inaugurated massive social change, launched movements all through history. But what we're looking at today and over the next couple of weeks that I'm excited about is we're looking at the greatest of all manifestos. This is King Jesus giving the manifesto of the kingdom. A kingdom is a system of rule. It's, it's a way humans operate with one another, organized under a king. And here we have Jesus saying, I am a king and I am building a kingdom, a society, and this is how I want us to live in the world. Now, to give you context, we're in Matthew chapter five. This is early in Jesus' ministry. Jesus arrived on the scene about 30 and he started preaching and the text tells us he would go from town to town to town and say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the theme of his message which is interesting because he doesn't say uh, some ideas I had or here's an idea of what we could do. He says it's the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God that's at hand. These aren't just man's ideas. It's not some leader's ideas. This is God's idea of how human beings should relate to each other. And he was going around and saying that the kingdom is at hand. It's here. It's present. Why? Because I'm here. And he sets himself apart as king, which Quite honestly, any person can do that. Anyone can say, hey, I'm a leader now. Everyone follow me. And people may or may not believe you. But then Jesus would couple it with miracles. The blind would see. The lame would walk. The dead would rise. And let me tell you something. If you're preaching a message, we may or may not be interested. But if you raise someone from the dead afterwards, we're all going to perk up. All right? And the miracles authenticated the message and the messenger. Suddenly they're like, this dude's saying it's a new day for humanity and he's got the juice to back it up. And so people start to invite their friends. They start to call people. They start to come. And so by the time we get to this passage, it says people are coming from Jerusalem, Judea, the Decapolis, across the Jordan. All of a sudden, masses of humanity coming out to listen to this man who has the power and the words of God with him. And when we arrive at this moment, his popularity hits critical mass. And so Jesus goes to the top of a plateau and he sits down and he issues the manifesto of the kingdom. This is what it is to be the people of God in the world. And this is what I want to look at together. How do we become a city on a hill? Because that's what he says here. And you know, we had to move onto the hill here. So we're doing Passion City on the Hill. So I thought, ah, it makes sense to read this passage on a city on a hill. That feels good. But he says we're meant to be a city on a hill. And what does that mean? 
Well, back then, you would build with white limestone, white limestone. And if you did it on top of a hill, a bunch of buildings, uh, it would reflect the sun. And so these cities would shine even during the day. It was obvious to see where they were. And at night, they'd be lit up by candlelights. You could see a, a city that was perched on a hill for miles. Uh, it's the same today. If you've ever flown on an airplane at night, you know when you pass over a city because it's lit, right? Or if you look at those NASA World at Night photos, you in know instantly where the population centers are on the planet. It's all lit up, bathed in light. And he says, I'm building a society, a community that's meant to be a light to the world. And then he says, so that they will see your good works and glorify your fathers in heaven. Jesus says, I want you to work with each other in a way that's good, that the world would see it and say, you know what? I'm trying to figure out my way in the world. Those people got something going on. Those people, the way they're doing things works. I want to be near them. I want to move into their society. I want to be under their king. I want to go there for safety and stability and life. I'm moving towards them like someone out of darkness into light. That's what we are meant to be as a culture, as the people of Jesus, right? That in many ways, we will look like the culture. Jesus dressed like a Middle Eastern man, spoke Aramaic, used illustrations anyone would get. Back in those days, they were primarily agrarian. But then when he started talking about, but there are other ways we will be very much unlike the culture. And as the sermon progresses past what I read today, he starts saying, hey, the way we process anger, very different than the world. The way we handle our sexual impulses, very different. The way we keep our word, the way we handle anxiety. And it's interesting, in a sermon, like a good teacher, he doesn't just present philosophy. He starts to get very practical in this sermon, stuff that would apply to their lives then and our lives now. He said, what should you preach a sermon on? He'd probably say, anger and anxiety. Everyone's scared and upset. Jesus is gonna do that because these are relevant to the human experience. And he says, there's a way to navigate the world that works, not just for you, but could make you a bright beacon of light to the world that desperately needs to know how to move. How do I become a city on a hill? Right? Now, it's important as we jump into this to give you some context, right? And so Jesus was the Jewish Messiah coming to the Jewish people at a critical moment. You know, they they had been their own autonomous nation in the Old Testament. And yet here in this moment, they were ruled by a foreign power, the city of Rome, uh, or the empire of Rome, through external control of Rome. But they also knew they didn't just have a political problem. They had a, a moral and a spiritual problem. Because in the Old Testament, God told them, I'm making you a nation and I'm going to bless you. And God said, I will be your king. And he said, so I want you to obey me. And then he warns them, if you won't obey me, if you don't submit to me, if you don't want to for me to be your king, when I say, if your enemy's donkey runs away, go get it for him. Like, if you don't like those rules, then I'll let you be ruled by somebody else. I'll put you under foreign domination and you'll figure out pretty quick what it's like to have a human ruler. They will use their power to exploit you. They'll take whatever they want from you and you have to figure out how to deal with it. And so they persisted in disobedience and he did. And you saw in the Old Testament, Babylon wiped them out and the Persians ruled over them. And now they're ruled by Rome. So you get this sense of the people of God looking and saying, there's a restlessness in us. We're not fully who we're meant to be under God and we don't feel good about that. And here Jesus comes and says, but the hope that was sprinkled through the Old Testament of one day redemption coming, it's here. It's here with me. And we find out later in the Bible that the Gentile, the non-Jew, any Gentiles in the house, we get to be grafted into the same kingdom. That there's a message here for the people of God back then and for us, if we have ears to hear it. And so it's gonna get very practical, by the way. Uh, we're gonna get deep into your lives. So if you're like, man, I need this guy to get in my grill. Don't worry about it, we will. But 
I can't just start with the practical stuff because that, that's about uh, skipping about a third of the sermon. Because at the top of the sermon, he's going to tell us who gets in the kingdom. How do you get in? And then he tells us how the people of the kingdom behave, right? There's all kinds of societies that different barriers to entry. Who gets in, right? Uh, you want to get into a certain club, you got to be attractive. You want to get into uh, a certain restaurant, you have to wear a coat and tie, right? You want to get into this society, you have to give some certain amount of money. There's all kinds of clubs and societies that have different entrance fees. What we're looking at here is how do you enter into the kingdom? And then we'll look at next week, in the next couple of weeks, how do the people of the kingdom behave? And let me just make this note before we jump into the text. This is great timing to do this for us. Because coming out of COVID, no one knows how to act. We have no idea what to do. People are fist bumping elbows and dodging hugs. Like no one knows what to do. Do we make eye contact now? Does that spread a disease? No one knows. And we're all sort of emerging from our holes going, how do I interact with another human? We have no idea how to function as a society. And so I think there's no better time for the people of Jesus, or if you, if you wouldn't call yourself that, just if you're curious about him, to say, well, how does he say we're meant to work? Not just as individuals, but as us. How do we work together? And he says, I got a way. I know a way. And when you do it this way, you will shine. You will be blessed and others will be blessed too. See it? So we'll get a running start in the philosophy here and then we'll jump into it later. How does a city on the hill, how do you become a city on the hill today? And then how does a city on the hill look? The church in the modern age through the sermon about the kingdom. So he begins with this famous segment. You probably recognize it, even if you don't read the Bible much. It's called the Beatitudes, which is Latin for blessed. Because he's saying blessed is this person, blessed are these, blessed are these. And then he tells you why. Uh, blessed there, some people say means happy. This is about how to be happy. You follow these steps, you'll be happy. And that's true-ish. It is true that it's talking about how to experience an internal sense of peace and joy, but that's not all that it is, an internal feeling of happiness. To be blessed has an external component that an outside being, here God, extends towards you. Love, approval, kindness, grace, and that extension externally of blessing to you becomes an internal sense of joy and peace because you got it. So the word blessed there encompasses both. God wants to bless you externally, send his approval towards you so you can experience the wonderful cognitive release of knowing the maker of the stars knows me and likes me. That's what's so crazy about today. You can walk out of this space today and know I am blessed by God. Who does God bless? Hashtag blessed. Why? How? You're about to find out from the king. And so he goes through these who is blessed. And here's what's interesting. It's none of it based on your practice, what you do. It's not based on the possessions that you have or don't have. It's all about posture. The posture of the people of God is in this text, right? And so verse three, you see the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does poor in spirit mean? Is this talking about being poor economically? Not necessarily. Although in Luke's version, it just stops at the word poor. And there's a lot you could say about that. But the reality is in the Bible, it's, there's significant overlap in language about the people who are poor materially and understand their needs spiritually. There's something about the poorest materially, it becomes easier to understand spiritual poverty, easier to understand a sense of lack or limitation. The rich can get pompous. 
I made some money. I've been successful. Suddenly there's a halo effect. I'm good at anything. I'm good at everything. I don't need God. I don't need other people. Look at me go. And so there's something about the external presence of wealth that can be internally corrupting to your values. It can make you a jerk. But it doesn't have to. There's some rich people in the Bible that are cool, and there's some poor people that aren't nice. And so it's not just talking about materially, although there's big overlap to that through the scriptures. What he's talking about here, and Matthew makes it explicit, is the poor in spirit. Here's the thing, because all these are connected. How do you get blessed by God? Who is blessed by God? Who gets into the kingdom of God? Those who admit their need. Those who admit a spiritual poverty. Nothing in my hands to God I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. The Bible tells us we do not buy the approval of God through the things we do. His approval's not for sale. It is a gift to those who acknowledge their need. I'm not good enough. Someone else has to be good for me. I am not sufficient in myself. Though we're all beautiful in the image of God, we're all broken. There's something wrong with you and with me. And when we acknowledge that, we are positioned to the blessing of God. When I admit my need and come with empty hands, he's most able to fill it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How do you get into the kingdom? You admit you need the king. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, is this about people who've lost loved ones? Not necessarily. What he's talking about here is, again, in that Old Testament context, the book of Isaiah talks about it. The people in the Old Testament were meant to feel bad. We we walked away from God, and we lost the blessing of our autonomy under him. We're under foreign power. We're dominated by powers outside of us that are ruining our lives. They're meant to feel a sense of grief because of what they've done. So you're meant to just not only realize I have a lack, you're meant to feel bad about that lack. I want my kids to feel bad when they do something bad. If my son can punch one of my daughters and feel no remorse, that's terrifying. That's called a psychopath. (laughs) I want him to feel bad. And when he does, then I can offer grace. All right, buddy. Well, what can we learn from that? How can we live in a different way, right? But I need to see him mourn that I've gone astray. And here he's talking about that. Hey, blessed are the poor in spirit. I know I'm not okay. I know I'm lacking. And I don't feel good about that. I need someone to help me. In the book of Isaiah, he was telling the whole Old Testament that, man, you walked away from God and it's hurt you. Some of you know what that feels like. You're here with just the tiniest modicum of hope because you know I walked away from God and I have traveled down many roads that have led to no answers. And you're here wondering if there's grace enough for you. Let me just tell you today, there is. It's when you admit you're poor in spirit and you mourn. That's when the grace of God comes running towards you. In the book of Isaiah, when the people realize that, man, we've made a mess of our lives, Isaiah 41, he flips and says, comfort, comfort my people. And then he starts talking about the Messiah, the king that would one day come to comfort you. And here Jesus grabs his language on purpose. I'm the comfort of God that's come to those who realize their need. I remember when I first started in ministry, I met this lady. She did accounting for our church. And uh, I was asking her, how do you become a church accountant? I didn't even know. And it turns out that she uh, had become a Christian fairly recently. She had been enormously successful in ministry, successful enough to retire at 40. 
And she said, you know, it's the interesting thing, man. I was successful, she said, but I just got to the point in my life where suddenly I realized I've got all this success, but I don't feel right about myself. I don't feel good about me. I don't feel good about the way I'm living. And I didn't know how to solve it. And she said, you know what, Ben? I realized I knew I was lost, even though I didn't use that language. She said, for years, I knew I was lost. I just didn't know how to get found. She said, but when I started mourning that and crying out to God, she said, a flyer landed in my mailbox and I showed up here, came to faith, and became the accountant of the church. I was like, well, how about that, right? But she's living the Beatitudes. I come poor, I come mourning, and his grace comes flooding in. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is not what most people meet, think, especially in this town. Might makes right, right? And in our culture today, I don't defend my position, I just steamroll opposition. That's who we are in the world today. The Christian says something else. The Christian says, I'm okay admitting my weakness. I don't have to act like I got it all together. I can come in small because when I come in small, I get to acknowledge that the most powerful of all beings is my king. I don't have to fight. He fights for me. Blessed are the meek. You don't have to act like you got it all together. Which, can that just be a huge sigh of relief for some of you? You don't have to act like you have it all together. We don't want you to because we know you don't. You're a mess. But I know in this town, so many of us feel like we have to, right? You go, man, I got to armor up, put on my power suit, power tie, power handshake. I'm taking over the world, right? And you just armor up, no weakness, cry later. <laughs> now you can't put on your power suit, you can't shake hands, you're all destabilized. <laughs> but you come here and you're like, religious people? Okay, I got this, hallelujah, praise God. And like you're trying to armor up like you got it put together. Stop, stop. You don't have to have it all together here. Nobody does. God doesn't want you to do that. He just wants you to be real and say, I'm a mess. He's like, I'm aware. <laughs> but that's good when you say that. Because when you admit you need that mercy, that's when mercy comes. When you admit you're meek, you, you inherit the earth. The whole kingdom's his. And he offers it to his children who come humbly and ask, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's not just that I feel a lack in me. It's I want it to be filled by what's right. I go, man, I'm, I'm insufficient in me and I can't fix it. No amount of discipline, no self-help book. I'm reading all these books about how to get more organized in my meaninglessness, but I don't really know where it's all going. I want to know what's right. I want to know what's true. I want to know what's beautiful, not just so I can do the right things, but so I can be a part of what's right in the world. How do I get reconnected from being dislocated from the universe and what it's about? And when I hunger for that, long for that, I want that. I don't just want to wake up and rise and grind and make a paycheck and do it all for no reason at all. I want to know where this is all going and I want to lockstep in with the king. When you hunger and thirst, he says, you be encouraged because I will satisfy that. I would dare say he put that hunger in you. That's what he does. Right? And when you long for him, he says, that's who gets in the kingdom. You want the blessing of God? You long for him and he loves to give it to you. Uh, I've told this story before. My mom, she uh, was a school teacher. And there was one day a student was crying in class, kind of real disorganized, kind of a mess. And so my mom pulled her in the hallway and was like, what is wrong with you? What is going on? And this girl was crying and was like, said, Miss Stewart, do you know what happens when you die? And my mom said, no. And this girl was distraught about that for some reason. My mom was like, well, hey, look, like you need to just 
eat all those feelings and go back in here. Like, you can't have you doing all this, you know? Went back in class. About a year later, this girl came back to school. She had graduated, she came back, and she said, Miss Stewart, do you remember when I asked you that question? She said, I think I found the answer. And she said, I'd love to share it with you. And, and she gave her this little kind of copy of the scriptures with, with kind of some guide in what it is to know God. And she gave it to my mom and it offended my mom. You're trying to say I'm not a good person? You're trying to fix me? With your little religious pamphlet? <laughs> Didn't care. Blew her off. Until about a year later, when some things that gave my mom stability in life got destabilized. Some answers she thought she had suddenly felt more like questions. And she looked up at her life and realized, hey, there's a lot of things I was counting on that are no longer here for me. And she started to feel that need. Something's wrong here, and I don't know how to get right. So she started looking to all these different religions and different backgrounds and spiritual backgrounds. And she said, all of them quoted Jesus. Like every spiritual movement was trying to hijack Jesus. And she said, I found Jesus's words more interesting. She said, so I just went to the source. There was a TV show about Jesus on. So I watched it. It was like a six-part series. She went and found her coffee table Bibles, the only Bible she had in the house. People used to buy those for people, like to write down birthdays and baptisms and stuff. So she got that like 50-pound baptism Bible. Some of y'all got those. She just, boom, threw it on the coffee table. It's like, okay. She just kind of read along in her book. He did say that. That's crazy. <laughs> and she just followed along. And without any prompting, without being told, it wasn't homework from her church. She just wanted to know God. That hunger and thirst led her to the feet of Jesus. And when she saw what he was like, that he was really like that, and she saw the way he lived, how beautiful it is and how far it is from how we live. When she saw him bleed out and die for us, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. She said, I want him. And she knelt down and put her faith in Jesus. And a couple months later, had me. And I got to grow up in a home that knew the grace of Jesus because my mom hungered and thirsted for righteousness and God satisfies that. You don't have to have all the answers, but you come hungry, you come thirsty. And I promise you, he longs to satisfy you. Just keep coming back. And when you do, he changes us on the inside and it begins to affect how we act on the outside. He says in the next verse, verse seven, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. When you come to God and know you need mercy, you are more apt to show it to other people. It's the folks who think they have it all together that are arrogant, right? Your favorite people. It's the ones who know they're needy that can be the most gracious. And he says, when you come to God for mercy, you can be merciful. I mentioned Sebastian Younger last week, one of my favorite authors. He just wrote a book recently where he took some guys that had gotten out of the military and they went and had an experience together where they walked along the railroad lines from Washington, D.C. up through Pittsburgh uh, and went for miles. Uh, it's illegal, by the way, to hike along railroad lines. Uh, but they did it, had loads of fun, made a video about it. But he said, it was interesting as I walked these rail lines, he said, uh, we noticed a familiar pattern. He said, when we walked through poor neighborhoods, just a couple of dudes in backpacks wandering. He said, regularly we were asked, are you okay? Do you need some water? He said, when we would go through more wealthy neighborhoods, they would call the cops. He said, it was an interesting thing. It was like the people who understood deprivation and the need for mercy were much more inclined to show it. And spiritually, it's the same way. When I know my need, 
I am more apt to meet need in other people. It manifests in compassion. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There was a time in Christianity where becoming a Christian was socially advantageous. Uh, it happened in ancient Rome. After the emperor became a Christian, people realized, oh, if he's a Christian, I need to act like I'm one too. Well, hallelujah, sir, because maybe I'll get a promotion. I'll get more money. I'll get more power. And there were people that began to pursue Jesus for mercenary motives. Happened in ancient Rome. Happened in America. That a lot of people here played the game of being Christian because it had some social advantage, right? It was sort of a mercenary motive. And uh, it's a little less like that now. Some of you not scoring a lot of cool points by saying you're a Christian at work. But the reality is, he says, hey, it's those who have a pure motive that you're going to meet God. So I don't know what drew you here. If you're just here to pick up chicks, it's fine. I mean, I'm glad you're here. But uh, uh, you're probably going to miss out on really knowing God, all right? Because blessed are those with a pure motive. I really want to know him. That pure longing, he's going to satisfy that. Uh, scribes were always trying to trick Jesus. And one of them came to him once and said, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus gave the answer he'd given other places. Love the Lord your God, love your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbors yourself. And this scribe said, you're right. He said, if we do that, it fulfills the whole law. And, and, and that's better than any sacrifice we could do. And Jesus looked at him and said, you're not far from the kingdom. You know what it is to have a pure motive. I just want to love God. I want to know him. And I want to be affected by that relationship. You're close. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. This isn't if you go make peace, then you get to be a son of God. It's you will be recognized as such, right? My son looks like me, not in a desperate attempt to become my son, but because he is my son. God is gracious when you love him and he's gracious when you're a jerk, God is gracious to those who pursue him and he's gracious to those who flee from him. He is gracious to those who love him and he's gracious to his enemies. That's our God. And when you come to know God, you become like that too, that we can be gracious. We can be peacemakers in the world, right? Which is a fascinating thing to be, right? Because the world is kind of banking on division right now. You think we'll stand out if we're peacemakers? I guarantee you. If the people of Jesus are about reconciliation and not division, we will look different than the world, right? And what's interesting, he moves straight from that to persecution. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I love the way D.A. Carson commented on this. He said, it's no accident that Jesus should pass from peacemaking to persecution, for the world enjoys its cherished hates and prejudices so much that the peacemaker is not always welcome. Isn't that a rough sentence? The world enjoys its cherished hates. We like hating some people. I love everybody. It's easy to love propositional hypothetical people. But all of us have people in your life that you're praying never show up here because you can't stand them, right? And it's hard to worship when you know you hate that guy. And he says, but blessed are those who are peacemakers but it'll cause persecution. There's people that don't want peacemakers in their midst. Blessed are those who are persecuted. But notice, it's not just people who go through hard times. Everyone goes through hard times. Those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, when you associate with me, when you come poor and needy, I'm gonna bless you. It's gonna change the way you begin to live. And as you do that, you will become different than the culture and there will be opposition, there will be friction because you'll stand out. 
you'll be strange. But how do you know you're blessed by God? You stay. You don't leave. Blessed are those when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. He doesn't just say you'll, you'll get persecuted for being a nice person. He said, because of your association with me will cost you in some places socially. But how do you know you're really his? How do you know you're part of his kingdom? How do you know you're blessed by him? You will associate with him even if it risks costing you. I remember when I was in high school, I had a buddy who was in his homeroom class and he left and he came running up to me. He wanted to tell me a story. He's like, hey man, I gotta tell you, this is awesome. He said, I was in homeroom class and the yearbooks had just come out. He said, and there was a page of all these people that had won different awards. He said, and this kid sitting in front of me in class just started going one by one through the pictures and making fun of everybody on this page, loudly for the whole class to hear, just listening to him mock people. And he's just going like, look at this moron, look at this guy. And he said, he's just going down the list, making fun of all these people. And then he gets to my girlfriend. He said, and he starts talking about her big head. He said, and I stood up and told him, that's enough. You don't get to talk about her like that in front of me. And he told me that story to just kind of show me what a tough guy he was. And so that I encouraged him. Like, you did good, buddy. That, look at you. Stand up for your girl. That's awesome. And then I said to him, wait a second. Uh, my picture was on that page. Uh, I said, did he say anything about me? And he was like, oh, yeah. He was going off about your weird-shaped head. And I was like, oh, okay. So you let that blow right on by. And you were kind of like, well, you know, some people's heads are, yeah. I was like, you didn't mind then. I understand where your allegiances lie, right? Apparently our tether is not as strong, right? How do you know you're really bound to somebody? You'll take the hits. You're not just with them for better, but you're with them for worse. How do you know you're with Jesus? Because you want him even when it costs you something. It's one of the ways you know. I remember when I first became a youth pastor, there was uh, these two young high school kids that I didn't really know, they weren't really part of our ministry, asked if they could meet with me. And I was like, sure. And so they set up the meeting uh, at Olive Garden, which was so strange. I'm like, why are we at Olive Garden? And uh, they told me later, they're like, well, we didn't know what pastors eat. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, uh, it's just these nervous high school kids. And I'm trying to figure out, like, what do y'all want? Like, what is happening? And um, they had had some kind of spiritual experience that had led to some conviction in their soul. They, they knew I'm not right and I want to be right and how do I get right with God? And they were asking me very sincere, earnest spiritual questions. And so I shared with them the gospel. You're all beautiful in the image of God, broken because of sin. Jesus Christ stepped in, lived the perfect life you could not die, the death you deserved. He's, he's the Messiah, the chosen one of God, the leader of this human story. You can be knit together with him by faith. And I start talking about that, what it is to know Jesus. And one of them looks over at his buddy and says, if our friends find out we're Christians, they will never hang out with us again. They were both in theater together and he just instantly put that together. You didn't even have to get that far in the Beatitudes. He just felt it. If, if we associate with Jesus, they will not call us to party with them anymore. And he was like, well, I don't know. We can still be cool with them. We can just tell them God, we're on this journey, but we can still be cool with them. And he was like, man, I don't know. And, and then they left and, and, I, and I watched them as they were leaving, calculating, is he worth it? And one of them started coming back, come back to church all the time and got to know him and ended up mentoring him and uh, studying the Bible with him. And, and I asked him kind of about his life. And he was like, you know what, man, I tried so hard to just be gracious, be a servant, care about this community. And he said, but then, yeah, they, they don't call me anymore. I know, they're, I know they're hanging out. They don't call me. I said, what about your buddy? He was like, oh, uh, someone else told me that he told them all about 
the conversation we had with you and he just mocked me to all my friends. And uh, it hurt him. But Jesus looks at him and says, but you're blessed and your reward in heaven will be great. Has the kingdom started now? Yes, you enter into the kingdom. It's already, but it's not yet. There's more blessing in the future, but there's some pain now. Will it cost you? Yes, but when you take that hit, let it be a sign to you, I know I'm really his because I want him even when it's hard. Uh, I had a friend, she was a, she was the sweetest human being I'd ever met in my life. I don't think that's wrong to say. She was just so nice. She was so nice. We would play racquetball and she had a mean swing. I mean, she would hit the ball so hard it'd make that weird like high-pitched zinging sound. It's like, zinging, like you couldn't see it. You just later the ball would land. And I'm like, what? I didn't even see that coming. And every time she did that and just aced me, she would turn around and go, I'm sorry. And I was like, no, stop. Don't you pity me. You win, all right? Uh, and uh, hated playing against her. She beat me all the time. But she um, left college and went to work for this consulting firm. And I'll never forget her coming back. And she was like, you know, I just really wanted to be friends with my coworkers. And that was her. She was like, oh, I'm like high up in this consulting firm and I've made brownies. You know, she's just the sweetest thing. But um, she wasn't, uh, she wouldn't criticize. She wouldn't jump in on bad-mouthing people. She was something else in the culture. And she never judged them like, hey, y'all stop talking like that. She just wouldn't go with them. And uh, as they watched her live different, she got rejected by a lot of those people. She had people who would begin to mock her and make fun of her because her life was different. And yet Jesus says, you're blessed. Great will your reward be in heaven because they persecuted the prophets the same way. It's always been like that, that God has called some people to walk with him and it may cost you. But you won't change the culture by just swimming along in its stream. You have to go against the stream. Will there be resistance? Yes, but you can change the tide. We can do that. That's what he says in verse 13. You're the salt of the earth. But if salt's lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Salt was common in the day, most common as a preservative. You would put salt on meat to keep it from decaying. And he's saying, I am taking my people and scattering them through the culture so that we hold society together, that we have a, a moral preservative quality against the decay of humanity. That's who we're meant to be. You see that all through human history. You see, as the Jewish people were carried away, there was degradation in society, but it was Esther who stood up, stood up and through her moral purity and faith rescued the Jewish people. Daniel, the same. You see, all through history, through painful regimes, there has always been a remnant of people who will stand up and say, no, love, beauty, and truth are worth living for and worth dying for. And it's when someone stands up against the tide of hate and ruthlessness and judgment and presents a more beautiful way you'll be despised and you might just get followed and you might just be a preservative to a culture. Maybe if we're a church like this, we see a city change. But if you lose its saltiness, how will it be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now I know there's just a handful of science nerds in here that are like, technically salt never loses its salt on you. So it's a stable compound. Stop it. Um, <laughs> back then they would gather uh, silt from marsh beds. And so it had salt in it along with other things and they would spread it on meat. And, and if it got in any way diluted, you would have handfuls of stuff you would call salt, but it lost all of its salt content. And so it was no longer useful. So they would take it and throw it on their roofs uh, because it would prevent or kind of create a flooring uh, on their earthen roofs that they would use as balconies to hang out and have parties in. Like we use our balconies and roofs here in DC. So uh, 
they said, hey, we just, if it's not going to be a preservative in the culture. You just throw it out to be trampled on. And some of you feel trampled on in your faith at work, and it's because you don't necessarily stand out. Uh, and yet we're called to be something different, a light to the world, something that stands out, a beacon your friends can come to when they're hurting. I don't know about you. I have many friends who've had that happen to them. Their friends would mock them, shame them, deride them, and then come to them when they were hurting. Do you have the strength to be different? Let me close with this. Jesus ends, and we don't have time to read it all, but he ends by talking about whether or not he's come to abolish the Old Testament. That, that would have been a tension if you were Jewish, you were feeling like, man, we had the Old Testament law, the Romans took over. Is Jesus just like starting some new third thing? And he says, no, I'm not here to abolish the law and the prophets. He said, I'm here to fulfill them. I'm here to bring them into their full completion. That's what I'm here to do. And then he says, but unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a very disturbing verse. I know some of you were kind of hoping I didn't read that one. It's a bad place to end. You go, wait a minute, the Pharisees and scribes were the most religious people of their day. Took great care to, to follow every bit of the Old Testament law and how they dressed, what they ate, how they walked, how they spoke. He's saying we've got to be more righteous than them. How is that even possible? Uh, I heard a pastor say it this way. It would be as if Jesus said, you've got to be fast to enter the kingdom of heaven. What's the natural question you'd ask after that? How fast? I love that y'all answered that, by the way. Yes, not rhetorical. Uh, how fast I gotta be? What if I said, Usain Bolt? It's too slow. You go, well, then who can get in? It's the fastest guy we got. That's how they would feel. Scribes and Pharisees? Yeah, the most religious people I've ever seen. Yeah, they're not righteous enough. What's <laughs> just, okay. All right, well, then there's no hope for me. Exactly. And that's how you loop around in this out. I'm poor in spirit. And I'm more than that. And I come in meekness. And I hunger and thirst for what's right. And I find within myself the inability to be what I'm meant to be. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus says, I know. And I haven't come to abolish this law I came to fulfill it. Down to the smallest letter, I will obey it for you. I will be the perfect emblem of humanity that you failed at. I will fulfill the hope in the Old Testament of one day a king will come and bring peace with God again. I'm that king. I'll fulfill the sacrifice of the Old Testament. You brought the blood of bulls and goats to show I know I'm guilty and someone else has to pay for my guilt, but the blood of bulls and goats can ever take away sin. They're just symbols. But John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That Jesus Christ could live the perfect life you and I could not. And it's the wages of sin that leads to death. He didn't sin, so he didn't need to die. But he did die willingly. But he took on your death and mine so that when we come with empty hands, we come humbly, we come empty to that cross. Equal ground, equal footing at the cross, all of us, rich, poor, wherever your background and experience religiously, we all come with empty hands to the king and say, will you forgive me? Will you love me? Will you rescue me? And Jesus says, yes, because it's the poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that will be satisfied 
called sons and daughters of God, loved by him and inherit this earth. Do you know him? He's what we're selling. And when you come to know him, he will change you. And we'll look at that in the next couple of weeks. The way you handle anger, resentment, all different anxiety, it's coming. But the change has to start in here. And it doesn't start by doing a thing. It starts by receiving what he has done. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.